Hope you're all having a wonderful week. Um, as of now, we are still planning on having service this Sunday morning, uh, but uh, we didn't know last week that we weren't. And so um, if by some reason we don't, I'm so glad that we've uh, recorded these sermons for our church family, that we can gather together still under the authority of the Word of God, uh, even in some way. Um, of course, there's our playlist that's found on our website as well. We encourage you to listen through uh, the songs this week that we'll be singing in worship. But I want you to turn uh, to your, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. I promise we will get through verse 1 this week. I give my word. Uh, let's read it together in a sermon entitled, Grace uh, in Peace, a Gospel Greeting. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what the precious, inerrant, infallible Word of God says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing over our his word this morning. Father, gracious Father, full of grace, Lord, we recognize that it is um, by your grace alone that our eyes have been opened to the glories that are in Christ Jesus, your Son. Uh, Lord, that it is by your grace in, alone that we are able to enjoy life and the freedom in Christ Jesus, Lord. We know it's by your grace alone that we continue in Christ together. It's by your grace alone that we persevere to the end. So Father, this morning we pray for your spirit to help us rightly hear your word, to respond in obedience, Lord, in a way that brings honor and glory to you, Father. I pray that if anything that I say is not in accordance with your word, that it would fall harmlessly to the ground. But Father, I pray that everything that I do say that's in accordance with your word that it would strike us to the quick. That it would have its transformative power in us by the work of your spirit. Granting us grace upon grace in and through your son Jesus Christ. To you be all glory and honor we pray. In Jesus name, amen. Amen. Uh, if I had to summarize the gospel in two words, just two I would choose these two words, grace and peace. What Paul is giving us here in 1 Thessalonians 1 is really a gospel greeting. He is greeting the church of the Thessalonians with the gospel itself when he says to them, grace to you and peace. And that's what we'll see today in our passage as we unpack these five words, four words in the Greek, but really only two that we're going to be focusing on this morning, grace and peace. And so that's going to be our outline. We're going to split up grace and peace and examine these two words and see how Paul really is greeting the Thessalonians with uh, the gospel. Let's start with grace. And as we jump into the consideration of what Paul is meaning when he says grace to you, I want to begin by taking a little bit of time to make sure that we understand the difference between grace and mercy. Because there is a difference. And this is something we've been over before, but 
let's reiterate because it's crucial. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So when you're pulled over for going too fast and the the police officer does not give you a ticket, he is being merciful. You are not getting what you have deserved. In that case, it would be a speeding ticket. That is an act of mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It would be like a police officer uh, pulling you over, walking up to you, and just handing you a $100 bill. That would be gracious and, might I add, really weird. Uh, But that would be an act of grace. See, grace and mercy are often uh, confused because in God's dealing with his people, with us, grace and mercy go hand in hand. God is both gracious and merciful to us every day and to every person. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, we know this very well. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. God has also revealed in his word that the consequence of not seeking him, not doing good, transgressing his law is death. We know that from the book of Romans as well. The wages of sin is death. So every transgression at the end of the day deserves wrath and punishment. It deserves death. So uh, let me ask you a question. Who listening to this has died for their sin? Have you? Who listening to this has had the wrath and punishment of God poured out upon them? Anyone? No one? Well, then my friends, you are a recipient of mercy. If you are are listening to this and you're still breathing air and you're not dead because of your sin or not suffering eternally the wrath and punishment of God, then you are actually at this moment a recipient of God's mercy. But not only have you received mercy, but you are also the recipient of God's common grace. Who listening to this has some type of employment? Hopefully most of us. Who listening to this is engaged in some type of purposeful work? Who listening to this has uh, been able to eat breakfast this morning? Who will sleep indoors tonight? I I, I think all of us, I hope, if not, please contact us. We'll make sure you do if you want to. You then are a recipient of God's common grace. Not only have you received mercy because you're not dead in your sins, you have not received the wrath and punishment of God, but you also each and every day receive air from God. You're using it right now, and that's a gracious gift from the Lord. You have uh, hopefully gained employment, you are able to eat food, you have shelter, you receive common grace from God. So God is merciful because he does not give people what they deserve, at least not yet. And he currently gives all people what they do not deserve. So he is gracious. But what's interesting about this text is that when Paul says grace to you in peace, he did not have in mind 
common grace, nor was he actually speaking specifically of mercy in any way. Instead, the grace that Paul expresses to the church of the Thessalonians is a gospel grace and a gospel peace. Paul was issuing a salutation that expresses the very essence of the gospel. Paul was expressing the supreme gift of God's undeserved favor in Jesus Christ. So now that we've defined grace and how it's used versus mercy as a clarification, I want us to look now at a couple things about grace. I want us to look at grace foreshadowed first. Let's look at grace, grace foreshadowed first. Grace foreshadowed. And really, what we have in the Old Testament, in my opinion, is as the greatest act of grace or greatest picture of grace is the Exodus event. When the Lord graciously hears the cry of, of his people in Israel and he comes to Israel's aid and releases them from slavery in Egypt, that is a demonstration of the grace of God. In fact, this is exactly what Moses reminds us about in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 and 8. Where he says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you, speaking to Israel, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. This is describing the grace of the Lord in bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt. Israel didn't earn this. They didn't merit this in any way. They didn't deserve the grace of God and his rescue any more than, God des or than Egypt deserved mercy instead of the plagues. Uh, do, we, do we understand that? Now, now some might say, listen, I thought that, that God saved Israel because he had made a covenant with Abram and Isaac and Jacob. And, and yes, that's true, but it still begs the question, doesn't it? Why Abraham and not Nahor? Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why Jacob and not Esau? Well, in a word, grace. It's grace. Israel wasn't smarter, prettier, more righteous, more anything. In fact, it's quite the opposite, actually. So much, in fact, that Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 9, 7, he says, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So why does the Lord grant them redemption at all? Why does he bring them out at all, friends? Grace, that's why. See, that's grace. Everything Israel received from the Lord is on the account of his glorious grace. An undeserved gift for an undeserving people. It's really what it is. I really want to focus on that very aspect of grace. What makes grace grace is that it is a gift to the undeserved. It is a gift to undeserving people. Listen, you may already get this, but I'm also speaking this to a people who live in a culture that contradicts this message at every turn. We know this. The message of our culture is actually the opposite, isn't it? You deserve to be happy, they say. 
You deserve a new phone. You deserve a car. You deserve whatever it is that your heart desires. You are deserving. But church, is, is that biblical? That's the message we hear in every commercial, in every movie, in every turn, that we're actually a deserving people. But is it biblical? Is it even true? You know me probably to be pretty blunt and I'll be blunt right now friends what you actually deserve you don't want we deserve wrath and punishment listen I know that I'll never be president with this message I'm not concerned about that but my message would be a lot more popular if I was just here to massage egos and tell us listen we're really not that bad we're not nearly as bad as we think we are we deserve some good things. We deserve at a minimum to be happy, to support our American given right and our pursuit of happiness. But it flies fat in the face of what scripture says about what we've actually merited in the sight of God. It really does. It goes against what we actually deserve. We know this. We've said this, friends. You and I, we deserve death. If we were simply talking about what you and I earned, then you and I deserve to rot for all eternity. We do. And and the reason I have to say this is because if you don't see this, here's the reality. If you don't see this, you don't know God. You are suppressing the truth about the power and goodness of God that is plainly seen in all that he has made. We look at the order of creation and its beauty and we know that God is good. We know that he deserves our worship. Listen, you are denying the truth about the holiness and righteousness of God that is plainly revealed in God's word. You are ignoring your conscience which testifies to your obligation to worship the only true and living God. Creation, his word, your conscience, they are all testifying against you if you don't see your sin in this way. See, that's the reason you you really fear people knowing what is actually in your heart. Because you know that in your heart you have things that are wicked and wrong. You know that you're more broken than you care to imagine. And if that veil would be removed for a single moment and you could behold yourself in all of your sinfulness, you know it would obliterate you. Listen, the reality is, church family, is that we don't deserve Jack. We don't. And until you come to recognize that, you cannot grasp grace. It's why I hammer it. As long as you entertain the idea that God owes you something, you will never comprehend his glorious grace. And I realize this isn't a popular message, but my job is not to give you a popular message. My job is to preach the word, and what I testify is the truth. And yet, It's in this very situation that the grace of God shines the brightest. It's in this situation, this circumstance. And so that leads us now to to grace realized. Grace realized. See, your grace is foreshadowed, supremely foreshadowed, in my opinion, in uh, the Exodus. But it is realized in Jesus Christ. 
It is supremely and ultimately realized through Jesus Christ. John writes this in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You should be familiar with that text. See, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of grace. He is grace with flesh and bones. Jesus is the favor of God walking among men. We deserve uh, for God the Father to send the Son in judgment. We deserve for God the Father to send the Son with an iron scepter to strike the nations, to force us to bend our knees and to send us away from God's presence forever. That's what we merited. We were rebels. It's, It's kind of like, and I know this analogy will really fall short and probably won't carry us all the way, like most of my analogies, but but it's kind of like a a mom and a stepdad. And and let's just presume the mom has five kids and the stepdad has a son of his own. The mom, the dad, and the stepson, they all go on vacation. They take a trip. Now, I don't know why they would leave their five children alone at home. It doesn't matter. You've already followed me on this illustration. Just keep on following me, all right? They're at home alone, and they know that their parents are good, the five children left at home, they, they know that their parents love them and they take care of them, that they've provided everything that they could have ever needed in a home. Yet, what they do when their parents are not there is they deface their property. They throw mustard on the wall. They tear up the furniture. They break the windows and they burn the entire house down. And so the stepfather catches wind of what's going on at home and he sends his son to take care of it. What would you expect the son to do? You would expect him to come home and take care of business, to to punish those five children, to make them pay, to make them fix it. But instead, the son actually comes and pays the price himself. He takes the punishment for all the damage caused, all the disgrace brought to the family on himself. He foots the bill. That's really a picture of this gospel of grace, that, that sinners are getting what they don't deserve. And what greater gift of God could he give us than his own son? What gift could sinners less deserve than God's very own son? The church family, that's what he gave. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. In fact, verse 16 of John 1 says, And of his fullness we have all received in grace and for grace. It leads us next, not just to see how grace is realized through Jesus Christ, but actually how grace is extended to those who hear the gospel with faith. Now we see grace extended. Now, instead of receiving wrath and punishment we so richly deserve, we receive grace upon grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. That's why Paul can write, by the way, to once again a predominantly Gentile group of people in Thessalonica and say this kind of gospel grace to you. It's not simply a greeting. It's the essence of the gospel. Judgment, what you and I deserve, has been replaced with grace, what you and I do not deserve. And that means instead of wrath, you've been given love. Instead of punishment, you've been given an eternal inheritance. It means Ephesians 2 is true, friends. Uh, Grace means that God, 
who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's grace. But see, grace is is not simply a reminder of how the Thessalonians were saved. That's not all it is. It's actually an expression of Paul's deepest desire for their brothers and sisters there in Thessalonica. It's also really a plea that Paul is giving here. It's a blessing, a request. Grace to you now. Grace to you to sustain you in the salvation you've received by grace. Paul is saying grace to you now and forever. As one commentator put it, he says, grace summarized is the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. But grace embraces not only the gift of salvation, but also the continuous divine action by which he enables his people to do his will. Grace does not simply bring you into the kingdom. Grace keeps you in the kingdom. Grace does not simply bring you from life to death, but grace provides the food you eat and the air you breathe and and maintains the life you live now in Christ Jesus. So like Paul, we can say, by grace I am what I am. That grace that continues to work in us is no more deserved than the grace that we received at the very start. You understand that, right? Uh, Listen, I've got no doubt that we understand that it's God's grace that does the work of salvation and, and God's grace in the beginning was all the way God's grace. But do we really understand that the grace that continues to sustain us in our Christian walks is just as much sovereignly from God as the grace that we received at the beginning? You don't earn God's grace By attending church and reading your Bible, you don't merit one single drop of grace by prayer. We're not meriting anything. Grace is in Christ. Yes, those things are means of grace, and and we, we recognize those and we avail ourselves to those. Grace is conveyed when we avail ourselves to the means of grace. We recognize that, but this is important. You haven't earned grace any more than a bird has earned the food from our bird feeder. I got a bird feeder for my birthday, which means I'm an old man now and I'm okay with it. Listen, the birds have not earned the meal I give them from my bird feeder. I'll be honest. I'm not trying to be cruel here. It's just the truth. It's a gift. I give it to them. The birds have done nothing to receive it from my bird feeder. Nothing to earn it. Nothing to deserve it. But what's more is that unlike the birds, I wouldn't even put my face in the bowl of God's grace if it wasn't for God's grace. Listen, I fill the bird feeder and, and the birds go to the little ledge of the bird feeder and they eat from it. But if God didn't restrain me by his own grace, I would have sooner gone to eat my own vomit than to go to the ledge of God's grace. That is the gloriousness of God's grace. And so we must learn to say with Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Do you see that tension? 
Avail ourselves to the means of grace? Absolutely. But think for a second that we merited any of that grace which is given to us by the Lord? Oh, oh no, nuh-uh. No way. That is the gloriousness of grace. But we're missing an aspect here. We need to see the gloriousness of peace as well. I won't spend quite as much time on this, mostly because I think in the Gospel of John, we we had a lot of this and looked at a lot of this, but now we're moving from grace to peace. And I simply want to do this. I want to look at what peace is not, and I want to look at what peace is here. What peace is not and what peace is. See, it's actually the grace of God that results in peace with God. So first, I want to consider briefly what this peace is not. This peace is not emotional tranquility. That's not what Paul's referring to here. This piece is not emotional tranquility. Uh, He's not saying, listen, I want you to experience inner peace. Nor is he saying like peace out or peace on earth in the sense of the absence of conflict. Not in and of themselves in any way is not what he's referring to. It's bigger than that. Really, it's shalom. It's best captured with that Hebrew word that means wholeness or completeness. A restoration of all relationships, all things as they are supposed to be. Not as we currently experience them. So that's really what peace is. Peace is all things rightly related to God and one another. All things rightly related to God and one another. That's peace. And listen, this peace was promised with the promised Messiah. It's always associated with the promised Messiah. Israel, uh, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This peace was proclaimed by the angels at the birth of Jesus, as recorded in Luke two fourteen. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is the peace that was accomplished ultimately at the cross. As Paul wrote to the Romans, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, let me just just say this, church family. When your relationship with God is made right, every other relationship is made right. Look, in the garden, we know this. We remember this. Every relationship was broken in the garden. Genesis 3, sin broke every relationship. Our relationship with one another was broken. Our relationship with ourself was shattered. Our relationship with creation was ruined. And our relationship with God was almost destroyed. But, but on the cross, all things are reconciled to Christ Jesus. Even now, what Christ Jesus has accomplished on the cross is being applied by the work of the Holy Spirit in anticipation for when Christ returns, where all things will be finally set right. All things will not be made as they were in the garden. No, they will far surpass even the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. All things will be made permanently right. Every relationship restored. And even now, church family, you can experience that present reality. For those who trust in Christ Jesus, we have peace. And yes, listen, I understand that may not be our experience on the outside of these walls or even inside these walls for that matter. Look, I understand that the world is still broken. 
Instead of peace with our neighbor, we often experience the hatred of our neighbor. We still experience our frailty, our brokenness, our sinfulness. The creation still groans under the weight of the curse. We still earn our bread by the sweat of our brows, yes. That final piece of which Paul speaks of here is still in the future, and yet in the lives of those who trust Christ, it ought to be breaking in even now. We are to live in light of that future reality. Regardless of how our neighbor may hate us, we live at peace with our neighbor because we're at peace with God. We live at peace with creation because we're at peace with God. We live at peace with ourselves. Why? Because we have peace with God. And now Paul writing to a predominantly Gentile audience says peace. And don't miss the significance of this. Paul knew Jeremiah 6.14. In fact, he's going to even refer to this uh, sometime later in this very book. Jeremiah 6.14 says, They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Do you understand this? Uh, Paul does not say peace lightly. He doesn't say peace with some hope and some day that those who have trusted in Christ might actually hopefully have peace. But in reality, their souls are still in peril. No, instead it's the quite opposite. He says peace because that is their position before God now. Fully reconciled. Having all things in Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news. See, when, when Christ said on the cross that it is finished, he meant peace. <laughs> the threat of death has been removed. The threat of wrath and punishment has been removed because our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Who listening to this, who is entrusting in Christ, does not have every reason to celebrate this glorious grace? This is the gospel. By the grace of God, Jesus is our peace. In Jesus, all of the relationships are healed. All our longing is fulfilled. Christian, I know, hear me, I'm almost finished. I know in our day-to-day experience right now with what we're experiencing in this world and this culture, this, is, this may not be what you feel. I know that. But what do you believe Listen, Jesus knew that our experience would not be one of emotional tranquility at the absence of conflict. Quite the opposite. In fact, Jesus told the apostles this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He spoke that to the apostles because he knew that their experience would be far from what we would consider peace. I mean, they were martyrs of the faith. Suffering, persecution, ultimately giving up their lives for the sake of the gospel. And he says, grace to you and peace. And the reason he says that is so that we might stand in that grace, in that same confidence. Indeed, as Paul says, if God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? By the grace of God, we have peace with God. See, grace to you and peace is a gospel greeting. And I just wanna, I wanna ask you in a point of application right now, because we've talked about this. Have you realized grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you experiencing that grace now as you grow to be like him? But, but even more than that, are you exhibiting grace? Are you exhibiting peace? If, if, I were to, if I were just to scroll through your text messages, scroll through your Facebook feed, listen to your conversations, would I hear somebody who's exhibiting grace and peace? See, this is our call now. Yes, this is a gospel greeting, and, and we praise God for for being able to receive this gospel and, and live at peace with him, but we are also called to exhibit this peace and grace in our culture. And friends, the most broken-hearted thing for me in our culture in this time is not so much that lost people are acting like lost people. That will never surprise me. It's that we as Christians are failing to understand grace and failing to live at peace. And so my, my charge is to remind you that though this is a future reality where we will not ultimately experience peace in this way until we are, we are gone or the Lord returns, we are supposed to be living in that future reality now. Would you join me in praying that God would allow us to show grace and show peace, not, not at, the, at the fault of not standing on truth, but grace and peace that points to truth, that is fueled by truth. I'm praying that the Lord would fix our broken world, yes, but, but friends, even more than that, I'm praying he would save sinners out of this broken world. And the way he's going to do that is by us bringing a gospel greeting to the world, a greeting full of grace and peace. So, so please don't get caught up so much in whether it's your political party or your fear because of your love for this country to forget that you are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And first and foremost, you have a commission from your actual commander in chief the Lord Jesus Christ, to exhibit grace and peace. I pray that you would do that. Help me as, as we join together in that. I, it's not easy for me either. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Gracious Father, oh Lord, how we need to, to hear this message, Father, every single day. We are so quick to return our confidence back to our own abilities but in reality, all we do in our own strength is merit death and wrath and punishment. Yet we come to the gospel and we hear that through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that wrath has been removed and grace has been given. Lord, help us. Help us to worship you in your son. Help us to lift up songs of praise, not just in a moment, but throughout the rest of the day. Help us to speak of, to sing of, to revel in that glorious grace that is found in your son, Jesus. And help us, Father, 
to truly exhibit peace, to live in this reality. We need your help. Pray that you'd give it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church family. We're always here for you. If you need anything, uh, please reach out. If you have any questions or, um, or concerns or prayer requests, we'd love to pray for you and minister to you in whatever your circumstance is. We love you. We hope you have a wonderful week. God bless.